Thanks for joining us on the American Masters podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. This upcoming interview hasn't been on the shelf very long. Just recently, I sat down with Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing, the directors of American Masters' Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You, which is streaming now at pbs.org slash americanmasters. These two award-winning filmmakers discuss the positives and negatives of working within the New York documentary community in an industry still largely dominated by men. According to a recent study by the Directors Guild of America, women account for just 6.4% of theatrical film directors and 17% of episodic television directors with minimal year-to-year growth. In our candid discussion, Grady and Ewing address these issues and reflect upon working with legendary producer Norman Lear as their most recent subject. I only know what it's like <laughs> to work as a woman in any way, in any you know, shape or form. So I have nothing to compare it to. So I really, I, I don't know if guys are, have it easier or better or whatever. Um, I know that we are two women that own our own business, and I think that has been an advantage for us, since there's two of us, and... Um, and two women equal one man. <laughs> yeah, two women equal one man. So, uh, you know, and we both are very... Um, We're joking. Confident. We're being and, sarcastic. Um, confident and, and outspoken, so, and we have each other's back, so I think that helps a lot. Uh, in terms of, you know, um, just too much mansplaining happening. <laughs> um, it's probably better in a meeting. We don't really know. I mean, we've never gone undercover as a dude to see what it's like, to see if their budgets are bigger, because I'm, I'm always assuming that their budgets are higher. Um, but I have no proof of that whatsoever. I can tell you that when we started out, there were less men in the field because there was less money in the field. Now there's more money. Wherever the money is, there was more men. So now that there's a lot more buyers for documentary film and it's actual business and there's much many more eyeballs and there's more at stake financially, there's a lot of more men have come into the field. That is definitely 100% true. And that's fine. It's just, you, you know, there's a lot more competition now than there was before. You have to stay on your game. You have to be ahead of the curve. You've got to be fresh. You've got to be paying attention to what's going on because there's a lot of people that want to be doing what we're doing. And so, you know, it keeps, it keeps you moving. It keeps you honest. Um, and it's a very exciting field. And we love we love doing it. I mean, look, the numbers the numbers are the numbers. You know, everyone says documentary filmmaking is better for women than it is for men. There are more women making documentaries than are making fiction films. That's because they're allowed to make documentary films because, again, because the budgets are lower. If you're if you're dealing with fifteen, fifty, sixty million dollars, most of those budgets are fiction films, and they're going to male directors. It's not there's not a lack of women who want to make fiction movies. There's a lack of opportunity, and this is we're the last people to say this out loud. This is absolutely in the in the discourse. I've heard you both use the word sisterhood, and it feels like regardless of the numbers, there's there is a real sisterhood in documentary films. You know, Susan Lacey ran American Masters for many, many years, and Sheila Nevins is over at HBO. And across the board, when you look at who's winning awards now, there are a lot of women filmmakers. 
It's great, and there's a lot of female executives in television. Female women can do very well in as television executives. Um, seriously, across the board, uh, you've got you've got a lot of powerful women, and they're commissioning films. That has to help. All you want is a fair chance. You want your you, you want special treatment. You just want to get your fair shot. Um, and I think it does help to have a mix of men and women executives up there that are making these decisions. Uh, we really can't complain, we don't complain, because we have a, an excellent career, and we've had one for a long time, and we have a lot of opportunities, and pretty much every film we've wanted to make, we get to make, we do make. So I think that, and, and there's a lot of young women that approach us at screenings, and they'll call us and email us that are very, they are inspired because they like our work, and they know that we're a female-owned business, and that actually feels great. You did a mentorship thing at Sundance, right, with young women filmmakers? That's right. I actually, it was women and men, but I had three female mentees, and um, we're, I'm helping them make their films. And we do a lot of mentorship. It's fun. And I do like to mentor women, uh, just because I think it's got to give them a leg up, give them a little more confidence to push them out there. The men don't need the confidence. So I, I, we, we try to mentor people that, that might need a little bit of a boost in order to get herself out there. And it really is the confidence. It really is, you know, um, you know, I think Heidi and I, what we have in common is we didn't know we weren't supposed to be confident. Somehow we <laughs> didn't, no one told us that. But, um, you know, I see women work for us all the time. People just getting out of college, boys and, you know, women and young men. Um, and the men ask for everything. They really do. They are not scared to ask for more money, to ask for more responsibility, to give their opinion. To go into the field with us, to uh, go on shoots with us. Never, never. There's never a shy guy. And the women are just don't ask. And that is advice that I give women all the time, young women all the time, because they do reach out to Heidi and I all the time as, as women business owners. And that is my number one advice, which is just don't be afraid. I read something online about even within the current administration's cabinet, women were trying to amplify when someone else would say something by just reiterating to make sure it was heard, which I thought was really interesting. What's that? That- You mean in meetings? Yeah, in meetings. Someone would say something and someone else would kind of reiterate it from a different way to make sure that the idea, a good idea, would, be, would, would land in the same, sort of in the same idea of the confidence. Yeah, speak decisively and put a period at the end of the sentence. Don't speak and ask a question. Say something and be done. <laughs> it's like, these are basic things that men do that you know we, we try to teach women who work for us to do the same. Are there other, in particular, women filmmakers whose work you admire and who've, or who've influenced your own work, more, more interestingly? You know, Amy Berg did a film for us earlier this year. Uh, I have a list of a few names, Nancy Bursky, Laura Poitras, Liz Garbus, Susan Lacey, whatever. Is, is there anyone where, I remember, for instance, in my job at, now as executive producer, Susan Lacey told me on my Quincy Jones American Masters, the only one I ever worked on, more poetry. And that stuck with me. It was like, it's not about a particular story point or pivot point or transition. It's about finding the poetry in the story. And I'm wondering, from your side, whether there was anyone who ever told you something like that. Well, I had an experience early on in my career when Heidi and I were making a film called The Boys of Baraka. It was our first film. And I had always, I love this film, Streetwise. I love it. 
to this day, it's still something that, you know, I, I practically know it by heart. It was, it's an observational film from the 80s. And I shared a rough cut with the editor, Nancy Baker, and she came in the next day and she couldn't, she was overwhelmed with how much she loved the movie. And it had never occurred to me that I could do anything that was good enough for her to have that reaction. And it was extremely motivating. And I will, I'll always remember it. She cut Harlan County, didn't she? She, cut, she cut Harlan County. Um, she cut On the Ropes. Yeah. She's brilliant. I really enjoyed my conversation with Barbara Koppel and uh, Chris Hedges, uh, and of course, part of the uh, D.A. Pennebaker fame, the two of them together. I really, only over the last few years have I um, sort of forged a friendship with those women. Uh, I always kind of kept my distance just out of respect and also not sure what to say to them. <laughs> and that's changed in the last few years, very naturally. And every now and then we'll have coffee or we'll see each other at an event. And I like to sit with them so much and just hear what they're working on and their perspective about the business. And I don't know, I, I, I think they're very, they're, they're giants in the business for a reason. And um, I do think, I, I like being around them. <laughs> sort of the elder states women, let's call it, of the documentary business. And in terms of my other colleagues, there is really a sisterhood, um, you know, from, you know, Liz Garbus and, and um, Lucy Walker and Laura. And I mean, there's... Christy Jacobson. There's, yeah, emails exchanged and texts and uh, we get together and do things together. And it's just um, a wonderful group of people that support each other. Because all of us know how difficult it is to complete a film and make it excellent. And so you'd think there'd be some sort of competitive side to it, but uh, there's room for everyone and we all make different kinds of work. And so it's really, really fun to sit and talk to them. Uh, so it's really, uh, we're very lucky. I don't know a lot of industries that have this kind of um, family, camaraderie. family camaraderie. camaraderie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really something else. I'm interested personally in the body of work in my career, uh, the body of work that I'm proud of, and I'm interested in longevity of a career. And so I think the more contact you have with your colleagues and, and discussions you have about how they're accomplishing those goals, it's just really, really helpful for how you manage your own, your own career. So steering back to Norman Lear, do you, when you were making the film, was there any issue regarding gender and taking on the subject that is worth talking about or? Not really, I mean, yeah. this is the guy that created the character Maud, so he's, pretty evolved. He is a man and he is 94. Um, he is from a different generation. So it's even more impressive actually how uh, open-minded he is. And he has he has five daughters and I think he's used to being around strong women. So it never came up at all. No, and he was one he's one of those guys where he'll test you and you know he give he could be he can be uh short-tempered um, and demanding at times. And if you just take it and don't give it a little bit back to him, it's not a good thing. So he, he's Never someone, in a rude way, though. Never in a yeah. rude way. Just, you just in a just, professional In a professional way. way. You know, you got to put the brakes on sometimes. And I think he's the kind of guy that he has asked his entire life and demanded, and he's gotten really far. So that's not a character trait that you just, like, give up when you turn 90, you know? So he always made it known where he stood about things. And he 
appreciated it when we did the same. And that was extremely comfortable for Rachel and I. There was not a lot of tiptoeing around in eggshells around Norman Lear. It's a wonderful thing. I will say on the gender side, there were several male filmmakers that we know uh, that wanted to make this film. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're saddened that they, they didn't get the opportunity. So, I mean, it's it's a nice thing that there was a lot of people that would, wanted to make the film about Norman and that, you know, we had the opportunity to do well, it. Well, and I think, it, to your credit, Norman is so proud of the work you did, and it, it from day one, it felt like an ideal fit. So, um, tough for those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you mentioned it before, but are there other examples of Norman pushing a more progressive agenda, whether it's for women or for minorities? Always. He, he's actually doing something really interesting now. He's just executive produced this series called America Divided, and it's going to be on the Epics Network, and he is also in it. And basically, it's a multi-part multi series looking at inequality in terms of housing, in terms of crime and, and policing, uh, in terms of they're looking at the Flint water crisis and how, you know, the most impoverished people were the ones who were poisoned and looking at all the ways that the country that inequality in the country and how the country is divided in some way and also what to do about it and you know he really was doing that while we were shooting he started doing it and getting involved with a lot of gusto and ideas and he is a progressive at heart and he really kind of pops his head up and shows up wherever there's someone trying to um, you know bring to light a lot of these inequalities I mean the man is extremely wealthy he uh, lives a very luxurious life he's aware of that and it's not that he's trying to make amends for that, but he, he wants to remain close to the things that have always mattered to him. And at heart, he's a poor kid from Hartford, Connecticut. And somehow, he's been able to preserve that, that persona, that ideology, that there, he's in there, that person. I don't know how, actually, uh, because he has a very, very comfortable lifestyle. But that's something we really admire about him, is that he really puts his money where his mouth is. And People for the American Way is still very much... Uh, an entity that he's part of, that he started. So, so yeah, the man really, he, I think he walks the walk. I think he also uses every second of the day. You get the sense, not just because he's 94 and he knows Tempest Fugit, but uh, he's always has. And I wonder sort of what did you, we touched on this a little bit before, but what did you take from him in terms of your own professional lessons or, or personal lessons? That I am never going to work as hard as Norman Lear. <laughs> Oh my God, that is so funny. I was gonna say, I, I never say I'm tired anymore, ever. I, it's like ridiculous. I mean, he's 94. I, why would I want to tire? What am I tired? I'm like, I. So it's we'll really. We'll finish his shoot you know, and he'll tell us that he has dinner reservations at, at 10 15. Which is insane. We had dinner with him at 9.30 last night after he had an entire full schedule doing promotion, doing a panel at the Ford Foundation. And we had a 9.30 dinner reservation. We offered, his, his daughter was too tired to go and his son-in-law. We're like, do you want us to cancel? It's way downtown. No, let's go. We were out till like 11.30 with him last night. No, I tell the story of the event in Chicago, the breakfast event, which we were called at 7 a.m. And he <laughs> flew in from L.A., so that's 5 a.m. L.A. time in Chicago. And the night before, he'd been out at a screening. So it's... And what did he do? He killed it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really amazing. And, you know, it's funny. It's he... good genes. Yeah. yeah. It's good genes married with... Curiosity. I really believe that. The curiosity is a, you know, burns, is a fire in his belly. And um, he's an incredibly curious guy. And that keeps you 
alert, keeps you alive. And he also likes to say, he says it, I think, in the film, that he um, goes to bed and the last thought is the taste of the coffee that he's going to drink the next morning. And there's something about that forward-looking. Like, I think he appreciates every moment he has on this planet, especially at 94. And what else would you say you learn from making this particular film, whether it's from Norman or, or, or making the film that you'd want to share with either aspiring filmmakers or people right now who are doing their homework and admire your work and want to want to think about how they can better their own work? I think you have to be able to bend your style and do, go into aesthetically, areas aesthetically that you're uncomfortable with or you haven't tried um, because the film is asking you to do that. You can't just make a character into an observational verite character because you know how to do that very well. You, you can't fight the story and the type of film that you should be making. And I think that it's very hard to do that when you're known for one type of filmmaking, you're comfortable in a certain genre. It's like this movie, I call it a very shiny penny. It's a shiny movie. Um, it glows and it should. <laughs> it's, it's, it's lit that way for a reason. Nothing is arbitrary. It was the way that this story needed to be told. It needed to be a, mostly a studio film. And that did not come easy. We resisted it for the first several months, tried to make this into a verite film. It wasn't meant to do that. So I think we finally smartened up and found the way to tell the story. But I would tell, in terms of filmmakers, you just got to really meditate on how should this film feel and look tonally, because it might not be something you've done before or are comfortable doing. And I think that that, we're like mid-career, and we had to sort of, I'll speak for myself personally, had, had to learn that and to start studying projections and talking to theater people and figuring out how things were done and green screen, we didn't know. So it's just like, um, it felt good to gain that knowledge and also to bend towards the place that the movie needed to go. You should be uh, a little nervous, different than not confident. Should be a little nervous at trying new things. Um, each film that we do, we try and take at least one big risk. Uh, we need to learn something every time. And um, this was a risk for us because it was a genre that we feel everyone knows and has ownership of, and they, you know, they expectations. They have expectations that are very clear. Formulaic. Formulaic. Yeah. And we um, we wanted to push push the genre, and that made us nervous because how many different ways can you make a biography? Well, it turns out you can. There's one more way. The way we did it. <laughs> Well, it was your fine work that prompted the launching of American Masters Pictures. And it's the theatrical banner for American Masters. And I'd love it if you'd speak briefly to the importance of a theatrical presence for any film and how that can sort of lift all boats in terms of, mm -hmm. of uh, building audience and so on. Well, you're never going to get as large an audience as you get broadcasting. Broadcasting is where you get the millions and millions of eyeballs. There's no question about that. However, a theatrical uh, release allows people to gather, hundreds of people to gather together in a communal way to enjoy the work together. That is a singular experience that cannot be repeated on any large TV screen. That's one. The other one is that it moves, it elevates a film, a theatrical release elevates a film into a type of promotion of press, 
of coverage, of critique and criticism uh, that you don't get anymore in television because the market's so saturated. So you're reaching uh, an audience that is hungry to experience the communal you know, experience of movies, and you're also getting the kind of analysis and critique and discussion around a movie in a public forum that's very difficult to get with a television broadcast these days. And so really, as a filmmakers, you want to hit all the different corners. You would like your, your festival release for buzz and for that wonderful festival-going crowd, and those crowds are growing every year. You want your theatrical release for the reasons I just mentioned. And then, of course, you want your big television broadcast where millions of people can see it for free. They don't have to leave their home or buy a ticket or take the subway or get in a car. And then, of course, you have the SVOD and all of the digital ways to see it later because you just want to give your film breath and life. You want to blow life into your movie. And the theatrical is a very special way to sort of tee up uh, the eventual broadcast. And for filmmakers and audiences, it's, it's a pleasure and a gift to, to be able to, ev to do even limited theatrical releases. And you mentioned the festival screenings. You all attended innumerable <laughs> festival screenings. It Doesn't it feel as though our whole culture is more interested in coming to documentary festivals now than 10, 20 years Seems ago? Seems like it. I mean, we've been making films for over 10 years, and they seem to kind of, uh, for instance, like even Sundance, it's, it's an internationally known event. People know what it is everywhere in the world. So I feel like it is something. It's, it's um, documentaries are not, are not like the little stepsister anymore. They're um, absolutely, um, given the critique, given the credence, uh, there, there's expectations that there's excellence. Also, it's really exciting because in, in terms of the festivals, there's more and more regional festivals that are popping up every year. And I actually really enjoy those regional festivals. Traverse City, never miss it if we're invited. Always go, not just because I'm from Michigan, but you know, Ashland, True Falls, True Falls Ashland, Columbia, Col yeah, and Columbia, Missouri, Ashland, Oregon. I mean, there are these little festivals and everything is sold out. People come, they stand in lines, they you know have breakfast and they go to a 9 a.m. screening, an 8 a.m. screening. I love the regional festivals. Festivals because it shows that people are hungry for, uh, you know, cultural experiences that they can't get all the time. And so I think that's a great sign that the United States, that all these, these towns are, are opening festivals and that they're so heavily attended. It makes me feel, um, I have very warm and happy feelings about, about people's curiosity, that they still want to learn new things. So it's, it's really great. It's been really fun seeing the Norman Lear film play in festivals. Um, my hope is that, you know, for every thousand people at the festival that sees it, a million people will see it on TV. That's yes. The, that's too, that's brother. That's a great hope. <laughs> we hope too. And also the people that, it's all sort of the buzz factor. You know, the, the people in, in Ashland who saw it are going to read in the paper it's coming and they're going to watch it again or tell their friends, I saw this at the Ashland film. Oh, you can't miss it. You know, people like to tell their friends something. There are, they're ambassadors to the film. The who, H, they are. Who would you say... And this is sort of a personal question. If you had to narrow it down, who's the most important person that when you showed the film to, you were like, oh, I wonder what they think? This it, particular film for or you always? Guys, no, this film. Was it a family member? Was it a colleague? No, it's, it, it's for me, it's the subject, typically. I mean, in this case, it's Norman. But um, you have three responsibilities when you make a film. You have one to your subject. You have one to your audience. And you have one to yourself. So showing it to your subject is, it is such a strange experience. 
it is a very unique experience that I think only documentary filmmakers actually do. Mm -hmm. And what was it like watching with Norman? I just sat in the same row as him, did not care about watching the movie. Obviously, I've seen it a million times, and I literally just watched his face and his body language. And it's, there's no one, there's no one that we're gonna show it to that it's gonna affect like that. So, um, in this case, it was Norman. Yeah, I, we, we were the opening night film at the Sundance Film Festival this year, so it was a, a very um, uh, elevated, wild experience and kind of a blur. But I do remember, Norman, of course, was in the audience, and, you know, we're backstage with Robert Redford, and it's starting to get nervous about... We go out to the stage, and there's 1,200 people, and pretty much everyone we've ever worked with in our entire career is sitting there. That's pretty much a fact. There they were, all the faces. Family, and there's some family members, and there's Norman, and there's Norman family, and, um, and all of our colleagues are sitting there. And there was, I was excited and nervous to show them this sort of very different departure for us. And so I was all around just excited to, and nervous to be at that platform, because you're, you know, to be there in that position. And so you just want everyone to love it. <laughs> Not everyone's always gonna love your work, but that was an especially important night for us because it was the culmination of a career that started, and we started our business in 2001. Our first film came out in 2005. So it was really a culmination of all the, those years of work. And I felt a lot of pride that night to, to share the movie with our colleagues. Well, American Masters has been around 30 years and I hope you return to the genre and cook up some other brilliant take on a legendary fi figure like Norman Lear. Maybe the Pope. We've always wanted to do Pope Francis. <laughs> I don't know if he's an American Masters. He's a... Does, we'll he, does he paint or anything? <laughs> <laughs> he's in a jazz band. <laughs> the American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner. Sound recording and mixing by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, and thank you for listening to our inaugural season. Join us next year for all new episodes of the American Masters podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash americanmasters. You can also find American Masters on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube.